Hello, and welcome to Transfusion's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Yara Park. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with the authors of the article, Pyrophosphate as a Novel Anticoagulant for Storage of Whole Blood, a Proof-of-Concept Study. Welcome, Drs. Max Feith and Evan Ross. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Feith, will you please introduce yourself? Yes, good morning, Yara. Thanks for having us. Uh, my name is Max Feith. I'm a German anesthesiologist. My uh, main areas of interest are emergency and critical care. And right now I'm assigned to the United States Army Institute of Surgical Research as a research fellow. And uh, at the ISR, that's the abbreviation for it, um, I'm conducting research in storage of uh, whole blood units and blood products and transfusion medicine um, in general. Thank you. And Dr. Ross, could you introduce yourself? Good morning, and thank you for having us. My name is Evan Ross, and I am a research scientist at the U.S. Army Institute of Surgical Research on Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. I'm broadly interested in critical care like Max, um, and uh, at the ISR, we uh, are very interested in extending the shelf life of whole blood, so that's where this project came from. Thank you so much. Can you summarize your study for our listeners? So, uh, as Evan just said, um, Blood, whole blood units and uh, transfusion is a critical thing in um, military medicine. So uh, as supplies are short, we aim to extend um, the shelf life. And um, we had the idea to uh, go back and see um, how we actually anticoagulate um, blood products and whole, bloods, whole blood units um, in order to find ways to adjust that and, and extend shelf life. And um, that's why we had a look at anticoagulation. And we asked us the question, why citrate and not uh, something else? So um, Evan went back uh, into the history and looked up other potential candidates for anticoagulation of whole blood and came up with pyrophosphate. And then we did some pilot studies. We formulated as a PPDA1 and tested it in that study that you recently published. And what we saw is that it, in fact, works as an anticoagulant, what's kind of interesting, and um, that it even uh, performs better in uh, viscoelastic, uh, viscoelastic uh, tests uh, than CPDA1 does. Um, there is one shortcoming about uh, PPDA1, and that it uh, that is that it seems to affect platelet count over time. Um, we found that this might be due to platelet clumping. So uh, this is an issue that is to be solved about PPDA1. But if we are able to solve that, PPDA1 might actually be a good candidate for substitution of uh, citrate as an anticoagulant for blood storage. So why? what led you to do this study? Many people would say citrate works fine. If it ain't broke, why fix it? Yeah, I think that the... Um... The driving force is something to the effect of when you look at the circulating half-life of blood in vivo, it's somewhere around 100 days, but in storage, it's only 30 days. And what accounts for that discrepancy? And so we thought that if we were going to make any kind of progress on uh, extending shelf life, we would have to start over from scratch. Um, CPDA1 has been optimized for the last 50 years. Uh, so it's probably at the end of its optimization life. And so the, we figured that uh, we would have to rethink the anticoagulation from 
or we, we would have to rethink the uh, storage solution from the anticoagulant up. Uh, and so we set out to find an alternative anticoagulant. Um, citrate has some theoretical problems, problems that we haven't investigated, but that are theoretically uh, issues. Uh, the first being that citrate is a major metabolite of the tricarboxylic acid cycle, and it acts as a feedback inhibitor of the glycolytic enzyme phosphofructokinase. So red blood cells that depend on glycolysis for energy might be susceptible to bioenergetic disruption by supernormal levels of citrate. Um, and then the second piece is that uh, emerging evidence suggests that citrate is uh, pro-inflammatory. And so when you think about patients who need blood transfusions, they're often already in a pro-inflammatory state and adding to that might actually be uh, less desirable. And so we were interested in seeing if we could come up with an alternative anticoagulant that wouldn't have those issues. So citrate works by binding calcium. Does pyrophosphate do the same mechanism? Is that how it works as well? Yeah, so pyrophosphate is really just two phosphate ions stuck together at the oxygen bond. Uh, it has a four negative charge. And so that negative charge makes it very attractive to things like calcium. Um, and so it uh, chelates calcium in the same way that citrate chelates calcium. Uh, this was discovered back in 1903 by a guy named Luigi Sabatani, who published a series of, of experiments in Italian uh, that I had to go back and find and translate using Google Translate. Uh, but what he pointed out was that things like oxalate will anticoagulate blood, but the way they do it is by precipitating calcium out of solution, whereas pyrophosphate uh, and citrate function by chelating calcium. Gotcha. So calcium remains the key. I would say that all of the anticoagulants that are useful for transfusion are based on chelating calcium. And the reason for that is that they can be easily reversed by the addition of calcium. Whereas something like heparin, it works as an anticoagulant, but when you put it back into somebody, you can't give them their clotting factors back as easily as you can give them back calcium. And so I think if you are thinking from a bleeding patient perspective, you want that blood to be able to clot. And so um, anticoagulants that are based on calcium chelation that can be overcome merely by the addition of calcium are preferable. Makes sense. In the paper, you mentioned that pyrophosphate has a use currently in nuclear medicine. What is the current route and dose of pyrophosphate used in that setting, and how does that compare to what would be used in transfusion or massive transfusion? Uh, pyrophosphate is used in technetium scanning. Um, the major uses are in looking at bones for areas of altered osteogenesis and looking for areas of injured myocardium, specifically detecting cardiac amyloidosis. They give it in a dose of about 12 milligrams um, IV, and we would be using around 600 milligrams per unit of uh, blood, so we'd be using a dose around 50 times higher, uh, but we'd be giving it a lot more slowly. As you know, whole blood units are given generally given quite slowly um, over a period of time. So while we are using a higher dose, uh, we are doing it uh, more slowly. So when we first started talking, Max mentioned that this project 
came out of wanting to extend shelf life. Do you think pyrophosphate could extend the shelf life of blood and blood products? Yes, I think that the uh, major issue that we're trying to overcome, we think is due to the citrate anticoagulation and its off-target effects. So we think that by replacing the citrate with alternative anticoagulants, we might be able to uh, extend shelf life. So our, our hope is that pyrophosphate is able to extend shelf life uh, through that mechanism. So are there potential side effects from using pyrophosphate anticoagulant in transfusion recipients? What could be the downstream effect for our patients? There are um, uh, pyrophosphate-related stone deposition diseases. Um, so calcium pyrophosphate um, stone or calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease, um, which is sort of a gout-like um, condition where um, calcium pyrophosphate crystals precipitate in joints. Um, so that is that is a theoretical possibility that would need to be examined. Yeah, that does not sound super pleasant at all. No, and I imagine, although I think that it probably has something to do with um, the uh, conditions within the joint more than the presence or absence of pyrophosphate. Gotcha. There was a lot of discussion in the paper about the concentration of pyrophosphate. Do you think it was at the optimal concentration, or do you think you need more or less for this to work large scale? I think uh, that if I had it all to do over again, I would dose optimize it differently. The way that we originally dose optimized it was we basically took blood, my blood actually, um, and looked at different concentrations of uh, pyrophosphate and picked the one that kept the blood anticoagulated at the lowest concentration possible, which I think was um, perhaps a little short-sighted. And what we would need to do is uh, perform a little bit more dose optimization. So I do think that there is room for dose optimization. But to harken back to what uh, Max said earlier, when you're comparing um, PPDA1, which is really just a copy of CPDA1 uh, with pyrophosphate instead of um, citrate, when you're comparing those two substances, CPDA1 has had a long time to be dose optimized and tested, and it's sort of uh, it's sort of battle tested and, and ready to go. Whereas PPDA1 is just an idea that we had and that seems to work. And considerable component, you know, there's, there's considerable room for optimization, not only on the pyrophosphate side, but as Max was saying, there's considerable room to optimize the non-pyrophosphate parts of it as well. So uh, there are there's a lot of room to change this and to see if those those changes make uh, positive effects on the ultimate product. Yeah, I, I just wanted to throw in something. So we're talking about adding more or less uh, pyrophosphate in order to optimize, for example, for platelet count. But um, if we'd say platelet count is better in higher concentrations of pyrophosphate, um, we would have a higher potential to chelate calcium in uh, the final sample or in the whole blood unit. And uh, one cool thing that we found about um, pyrophosphate um, was that the PPDA1 samples performed even better with the same amount of calcium um, in TAG uh, as the CPDA1 samples did. So it is always, or it appears to be a tightrope walk between dose optimization for platelet count 
and for example the risk of hypocalcemia by uh, induced by the the uh, potential to chelate calcium in the um, final whole blood unit so um, I guess uh, yes Evan is totally right we we could uh, even more dose optimize it but uh, you need to define your samples first and uh, if you say you want to have um, blood that is uh, retransfused and able to reclot again, then uh, it is uh, about uh, the platelet count on the one hand side, but it is about platelet function on the other hand side. And that is something that you always have to consider when you think about those optimization of those uh, solutions. What are the potential implications for uses of pyrophosphate as an anticoagulant for platelet products, given the observed decrease in platelet numbers and possible increase in the clumping? I would say that um, in its current form, pyrophosphate as an anticoagulant would be more appropriate for uh, like packed red blood cells uh, rather than platelets. That being said, if in the future we find a way around the clumping problem, then we foresee it being a anticoagulant for all blood products. But as you say, for now, the uh, platelet clumping problem would suggest that it's a better anticoagulant for red blood cell units than it is for whole blood units. All that being said, I think it's also potentially something useful in the laboratory. So if somebody needed an anticoagulant that was not citrate, they could fall back on pyrophosphate. And uh, maybe it has a different uh, laboratory effect. Interesting. Yeah, that's true. In the future, what clinical outcomes would you want to study to determine the benefits of a reduced pro-inflammatory state with the use of pyrophosphate versus citrate? This may be my simplicity as a thinker, but um, certainly I think that the major uh, outcomes that you always care about are going to be the big outcomes of transfusion, such as uh, mortality at, say, 30 days, um, and then the occurrence of um, major transfusion uh, complications. So for me, the major outcomes are mortality at 90 days, mortality at 30 days, or maybe just raw mortality. Um, and, or I guess I should say, you know, for me, the outcomes that matter are mortality because that's why you're transfusing. Um, so I would say mortality and then the uh, presence or absence of uh, complications. That's simple and makes sense to me too. Max, do you have any uh, more sophisticated answer to that? Well, no, I think uh, the way you approached it is kind of smart because uh, Another way you could think about this is, for example, uh, does any uh, inflammatory marker increase after you transfused uh, PPDA1-treated blood? Um, but inflammation is a multi-layered thing. So if one uh, inflama inflammatory marker uh, increases, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it has an impact on, for example, survival or the incidence of sepsis or whatever. So uh, I think um, talking about uh, the complication rate and modality just makes sense um, and even makes perhaps more sense than just talking about uh, one single biomarker of inflammation. So Evan mentioned a lesson learned about the concentration of the pyrophosphate. What other lessons learned could you share with our listeners that you took away from this? I'd say that the most 
fascinating thing to me about this whole process was the journey backwards in time through the literature. We started with the question of why citrate and why that dose of citrate. So we worked backwards in time to find, uh, we kind of followed a, a, a trail of breadcrumbs backwards in time through the literature to find why did this investigator choose citrate or why did they choose this dose and so on and so forth. Um, the use of citrate as an anticoagulant, the use of citrate as an anticoagulant for blood transfusion specifically dates to 1914 and 1915. Um, a Belgian by the name of Houston, an Argentinian by the name of Agoti in 1914, and then two Americans in 1915 separately, Lewison and Whale, were the ones who uh, pioneered the use of citrate for uh, transfusion. And um, interestingly, none of them uh, particularly Interestingly, uh, they don't talk a lot about the alternatives that they explored. So they sort of say, Lewison in particular is funny because he writes about using Harudin, which is leech venom, and uh, as an anticoagulant. And he transfused it into a woman and she nearly died. And he said, yeah, maybe not that. So, and then he said, I tried citrate and it worked, so I kept using citrate. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, we, as part of this look backwards through the literature, I found tons of different anticoagulants. Um, and it sort of surprised me that citrate was the only one that sort of won out in the end. Um, what was particularly interesting to me was that I couldn't find, between Houston, Agote, Lewis, and or Wheel, the, the, the four guys who first pioneered the use of citrate in whole blood anticoagulation for transfusion. I couldn't find any of them specifically saying why they had picked citrate um, as opposed to uh, anything else with the single exception of Lewison saying that he had tried Harudin and he didn't like it. Um, so, well, I guess Lewison tried Harudin and it nearly killed someone and that's why he didn't like it. But what's interesting is that the people who were interested in discovering the components of blood and like um, Bizzazero, who's kind of considered the discoverer of the role of platelets in, homeo in, uh, in um, uh, blood clotting. You know, if you read Bizzazero and you read other people, uh, which you have to do in German, by the way, thanks Google Translate. If you go back through the old literature for, from Bizzazero in German, you'll find that he describes using uh, magnesium sulfate as his particular anticoagulant of choice. And uh, not only does he describe using that, but also several other different kinds of salts that he uses as anticoagulants. And it strikes me that the pathologists or, or pre-pathologists of the time were interested in anticoagulating blood so that they could look at it under a microscope. They didn't have any interest in transfusion, uh, whereas the guys who were interested in transfusion didn't seem to be completely aware of the work of the pathologists. So 
there were these sort of silos between the protopathologists and the early clinicians such that they were not really aware of each other's work in any meaningful sense of the word. And so the consequence of that was that there was this sort of narrow view where I think Houston, I think he references a specific uh, pathologist's work and says, this guy likes citrate, so I tried citrate and it worked, so I kept using it. Um, but if you do a more comprehensive look at the literature, you can see that there's a lot of alternatives out there. Um, magnesium sulfate is, is a particular favorite of mine. If you use it at about 40 millimolar concentration, you get sustained anticoagulation of whole blood. And uh, it seems pretty, otherwise, it seems fairly innocuous as far as uh, the, as far as the uh, blood is concerned. So magnesium sulfate at 40 millimolar is considerably higher than what you would see if you were getting mag sulfate injections, say, for preeclampsia, which would, in an average person, would probably be around 10 millimolar. But again, you're transfusing blood pretty slowly, so maybe magnesium sulfate anticoagulated blood could be uh, something in the future. What makes magnesium sulfate not work uh, it's actually kind of interesting when we try to recalcify mag sulfate, uh, mag sulfate anticoagulated blood, it won't clot. And so if any of your listeners are particularly interested in blood clotting, it's a pretty fascinating problem because you can make the blood not clot, but you can't make it reclot. And I think that's really fascinating. And we don't really have time or resources to chase that down. So that's free for anyone who wants to take it. So looking back, what surprised you the most about your study? If I'm being honest, it was that it worked. Um, the, it, was, it was basically, I was reading this old paper in 19, from 1903 in Italian using Google Translate, and he uh, Luigi Sabatani gives this list of uh, things that work to anticoagulate blood, and he separates them into two lists. He says this causes the anticoagulation of blood by precipitating calcium. This causes the uh, anticoagulation of blood by the chelation of calcium. And that list contained citrate, pyrophosphate, and metaphosphate. And I said to myself, I wonder if we have any pyrophosphate. And I went hunting around in one of my colleagues' labs. And sure enough, we had some pyrophosphate tetrabasic. And I said, all right, let's give this a shot. So I mixed them up and it worked. And it just shocked me. What was the hardest part of the study? I don't know. Max, is, uh, Max has been the hands of this study since I figured out what dose we wanted to use. So I'll defer to him. Yeah, I think the hardest part for me was to learn how to work in a lab because uh, usually, as I said uh, while introducing me, uh, I'm working in a hospital taking care of uh, critical care and emergency cases. Um, so I didn't have broad laboratory experiences before I started working with Evan and I had to learn all of that. But uh, yeah, I guess... That was the hardest part for me, and uh, it was very interesting for me to see that uh, we made it work finally. That's one of the fun things about the exchange officer program that we have between us and Germany is the opportunity for clinicians to learn what we do on the bench. It's a very cool program. 
Yeah, and it's not it's not uh, a good opportunity just for the clinicians to gain understanding in uh, basic research. It is also worthful, I think, uh, that clinicians provide insights about clinical care to basic researchers as, uh, you know, um, you, you might start working um, in towards, towards a specific direction in any topic and uh, you go one step after the other and then you have been working on this for a year or two and uh, it will never come to clinical practice because a clinician looks at it and says, okay, uh, cool that it works, but here is point A or point B that uh, prevents us from doing it. And so I think that um, that, that uh, yeah, exchange program that I am participating in right now um, offers benefits for both sides. So what's next for your group? So right now, um, as Evan uh, already uh, mentioned, um, there are a lot of other alternatives for anticoagulation, and we are working on that. Um, we are also working on dose optimization of PPDA1 for sure, um, but we want to explore and see if there are other potential candidates um, other than PPDA1, other than CPDA1, and uh, we want to have like a body of, let's say, three or four or five potential candidates that are dose optimized, and then uh, we'll go uh, ahead and see if they, um, for example, perform better in terms of inflammation activation or perform better in animal studies or in shelf life. Um, so there is still a lot to do. Yeah, just to echo Max, we're interested in finding alternative anticoagulants that um, could replace citrate. So we're working towards that at the moment. And of course, dose optimizing what we've already got. And that's our show. Thank you to Dr. Feet and Dr. Ross for joining us for a really fascinating discussion. This has been Yara Park for Transfusion's monthly podcast. See you next time. Mm-hmm.